Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, uh, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, Today I have a professor or associate professor, Samuel Sidi. He works with uh, developmental and regenerative biology, all part of Mount Sinai Icon School of Medicine. I'm going to talk about um, potential cancer targets by using zebrafish as a model. So Sam, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Yeah, if you would, tell me about your uh, your research and why zebrafish and, you know, let's get into it. So why zebrafish? That's a really good question. So I trained as a, as a geneticist, as a basic geneticist back in France. And early 1990s, I attended a lecture. There was this guy who uh, presented this new model system called the zebrafish and explained that this was a model where basic geneticists that were working at the time in the classical models, such as flies, worms, and yeast, they were trying to get into the zebrafish. Why? Because the fish being a vertebrate is closer to humans and closer both genetically and also pathophysiologically. And they wanted to get closer to humans to start asking questions more relevant to human disease and human development. Now, the power of the invertebrate systems, such as flies and worms, and yeast for genetics is you can do the classic unbiased approach of forward genetic screening, meaning that you do not go in with a a hypothesis or even a, a preconception of what the answer is to your question. You let the animal tell you what the answer is. So for instance, Yanni Muslein Volhart received the Nobel Prize in 1995 together with Eric Wieschaus. They did a four genetic screen for uh, genes in, uh, required for the development of the of Drosophila, of the fly. Okay. They mutated the genome randomly and looked for phenotypes in larval cuticles. And what they found were basically almost all the genes necessary for fly development. They then cloned the genes and the animal just told these researchers, these are the genes that are important for the development of the embryo. And so it's an unbiased approach where as long as you have, you're asking the right question and you have the right assay and animal model, you're going to get novel information as to how a biological process works. Well, well, question question here, how would you randomly mutate genes? How do you know that? You just feed a nasty chemical to the animals, to males, for example. The chemical hits the DNA about uh, the... Statistically, um, you establish a protocol that will give you one mutation per coding sequence per spermatogonia, so per male gamete, and then you cross these males to females, and then you recross the progeny together to get the mutation in the homozygous state, and hopefully that produces a phenotype. And so, for example, if the question you're asking is, what are the genes important for the development of this creature I'm looking at? say, the development of the fly, then you're going to look for phenotypes in the progeny of these mutagenized uh, flies and look for flies that don't look right. And then... So one, one quick question. So you do an initial round of, you know, poison feeding, and then you look at the mutations that have come up, and then you select the ones that are on 
genes that you want to observe the function of and then you breed them? No, you select those mutations that produce phenotypes that are of interest to you. So let's say, for example, you're interested in the development of the wing in the fly. You feed this mutagen to these flies, and then you look at their progeny, and now you're looking at embryos that lack, say, wings, wing buds. Once you've isolated such a line through a series of crosses and then mapping of the mutation, you can identify the gene that carries the mutation that's responsible for the absence of wings in the embryo. Yeah, but I thought uh, mutation rarely produces uh, viable you know, viable progeny. And then you add the extra step of, I want progeny with, you know, five wings instead of two, or, you know, deformed wings, let's say. I mean, it seems like it would take a ton of uh, experimentation to get that. Yeah, it's a lot of work, but it can be achieved. And it was achieved and it gave rise to the Nobel Prize to these two researchers. Again, the idea is you're interested in the development of the wing, but you don't know how that works. You have no idea how that works. So you do this unbiased approach to figure out how it works with the embryo itself telling you, hey, that gene is important for my wing development. You didn't know that. I'm telling you it is because there's a mutation in that gene. If that gene is mutated, you cannot get a proper wing. And that's that's how they identify multiple genes required for normal development in the fly. And it turns out that all these genes or most of these genes that are important for fly development turned out to be important for vertebrate development. But here... What they did, what the vertebrate developmental biologists did at the time was they said, they found that this gene is important for this aspect of development in flies. My hypothesis is that the same gene that evolved from that gene is important for the development of the mouse. And so what they did is they went in with a hypothesis that gene A was important for the development of the mouse. They knocked it out in the mouse and looked at whether or not they got a similar phenotype to what was observed in flies. So that's the It's the reverse approach. It's called the reverse genetic approach, where you have a gene of interest, you knock it out, and you see if you get a phenotype as a result. The problem is you're biased. You're biased in the gene you're studying, right? And so the power of the reverse genetic approach is as long as you have a question of interest to you, you don't need to necessarily know anything about the molecular mechanisms that control that biological process. You randomly mutate the genome and you let the animal tell you based on the phenotype what genes are important for the process. Yeah, it's a strange way of doing it, but I see what you mean. And so basically, you cannot do unbiased genetic screening or unbiased drug screening in the mouse. I mean, you can, but it's very unrealistic. You would have to grow thousands and thousands and thousands of mice. You would need a huge amount of space, a huge amount of money to do this. So it's unrealistic. However, now the zebrafish is much smaller. You can grow many more in a small facility. And crucially, you're never limited by the number of embryos because each and every single female that you have, and say you have thousands of females in your facility, will give you about 300 embryos uh, per lay per week, basically. So you're not limited in the number of embryos. And so you can definitely directly apply this technique of unbiased genetic screening that was so typical of invertebrate systems, you can now apply it to vertebrates. And so the- it would be nice if you could select the, you know, like instead of a mutagen, why not like irradiate the, uh, you know, the sex organs of the, the male flies and see what happens yeah. then or selectively irradiate parts of them or something. That could work. You can all even dose the radiation. So it gives you one double strand DNA break per cell at a very low uh, dose of radiation. It's just that the mutagens, like the chemical mutagens that we feed the animals is, what has been used 
uh, you know, traditionally for decades and decades. So that's the way we do it. We know exactly the dose to give to get one mutation for one gene, uh, one gamut, right? So uh, you can control this way. It's, a st- it's empirical and statistical, of course, but you can control better control this way that you're hitting one gene per dermatocyte in the mel that you're feeding the mutagen. So out of curiosity, what are the numbers involved? So you know, how many mutagen feedings to get to not only different phenotype, but viable different phenotype, and then one that is preserved through breeding. So typically you're, you're going to feed five, six males, the mutagen in the first generation, and then you're going to grow thousands of descendants of that male. Each descendant is a potential career of one mutation that it inherited at birth through the sperm that fertilize the egg in the first generation. And so they're all, each and every single one of these fish in the first generation out of this founder fish is basically carrying that mutation. Again, only one mutation, only one copy of the mutation. And so in the heterozygous state. And so what you hope for is that this male will then carry this mutation in each and every one of its spermatogonia. And therefore, in the next generation, you will get a uniform number of fish that either carry the mutation or don't carry the mutation. You just cross them and then you can get the mutations in two copies, which is the homozygous state for recessive alleles. That's what you need to get the phenotype out of it. Dominant alleles, you just need to be heterozygous to develop these phenotypes. But most of the phenotypes that we're looking at are recessive And so you need to to go to the next generation. So it's thousands of fish. And that's what makes it so unrealistic to do it in the mouse. Now, in addition to the feasibility of random mutagenesis in the fish, uh, what's really important to understand is that in contrast to mouse, zebrafish females lay their eggs outside. So zebrafish embryos do not grow inside their mom. Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. They grow outside their mom. And you can grow them very easily in Petri dishes with a little bit of water in them. And so in contrast to what you would be able to do with mice, here you can look at development of these creatures in real time under a stereo microscope at your bench. Whereas if you were in the mouse, you would have to open up the belly of the, of the mom, sacrifice the mom, take out the 12 pups out of that mom, and then do whatever you can, knowing that lack of oxygen is going to kill the embryos anyway. The other advantage of the fish is that the embryos can survive for at least five to nine days without a functioning heartbeat. So oxygen diffuses straight through the embryos, and that's sufficient for viability until at least day nine. So there are a lot of caveats of the typical vertebrate system, which is the mouse that you don't have in the The trade-off, of course, of using the fish versus the mouse is that the mouse is is a mammal much closer to us than the fish is, but the fish is still a vertebrate and so retains many of the characteristics of human uh, development, physiology, and disease. And for example, fish can get cancer. What's wrong with the uh, the male progeny not having 
I don't even know the term for it, but you said they only have one copy, essentially the mutation instead of two. Is it that two is rarely viable? Having the mutant gene in both copies on both chromosomes, so you have zero protein out of that gene, that usually is what produces the phenotype. Typically, 50% of the, pro, of the gene product is sufficient for wild-type function of the gene, right? So unless you have a dominant FT where even half of the gene product is not sufficient to carry the wild-type function. So, you know, dominant diseases, you have them in humans, right? But most of these diseases are recessive, meaning that you need the gene to be mutated okay. the two alleles to get the phenotype. And to, okay, to see phenotype differences... Yeah. Again, are there ones that you want to study that would, would that would require both copies of the uh, of the gene to be uh, mutated? Yeah, most of them. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So uh, this is with fruit flies. How did you get to zebrafish? Then is the mechanism yeah, easy so, or what? Yeah. Sorry, I dig- I digress. So basically, okay. so the guy comes in and gives this lecture and says, "Hey, there's this new model now, the zebrafish. It was actually 1995. I remember that like it was yesterday. 1996, early 1996. And he said, you know what? That woman who got the Nobel Prize for her, uh, who got the, the Nobel Prize that very year for her screen that led to us knowing the genes required for animal development, that person decided to take all the money from, from her Nobel Prize and invest it in building the first zebrafish, large zebrafish facility in the world. It was in Tübingen in Germany. And he said, hey, she's banking everything she's got on going into the fish I think she knows something and I think she thinks this is promising. And I came out of this lecture thinking, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, this might be it. I was always interested in disease from the beginning. And I always thought that invertebrates, while informative, might lack many of the pathways and mechanisms that, you know, are deregulated in disease. And I thought, oh, now, now we can do this in a vertebrate. It's not, this is insane. And so I leave uh, my college campus. I, I go to my to my dad's office. We were going to have lunch that day. My my dad is a cardiologist, and it was this just absolutely crazy situation where I enter his office, and in his office he has this intern with him. And I I tell my dad in front of that intern, Dad, I mean, I just had this lecture that completely blew me away. You'll you'll never can't even. And so I talk, I start talking to him about the zebrafish, and then that intern looks at me. And says, the ze- you know about zebrafish? How do you know about zebrafish? And I said, well, I just got that lecture for the first time. And he says, well, you won't believe this, but my own father, Friedrich Bonhoeffer, is a collaborator on this big, gigantic screen they're doing in zebrafish in Tübingen, in Germany. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. I mean, it was like... It was unbelievable. And, and so I told Philip, who was in the, uh, the intern, I told him, hey, I can take a train ticket right now. I want to go. And, and that's what happened. He, he called up his dad. He said, there's this French guy who, who's interested. And, you know, I interviewed there and they took me for a summer studentship. And that's how it all started. It was just an accident. And uh, so that was 1996. And yeah, it's what, 24 years ago. And so I got hooked up for the beginning I recognized the power of the model. Uh, most importantly, I recognized what it brought to the table, how complementary it was to the mouse. So it was really the model that we were missing, some kind of a model between the fly in which you can do unbiased and the mouse where you can only realistically do hypothesis-driven. Now we had something in the middle, a vertebrate system in which we could do unbiased analysis. And Richard, I mean, it's, it's really important 
so for you to understand from, from my perspective, the unbiased approach is really the, the best way to find novel biology. Because again, as you're just asking a question, but you don't have a preconception as to what the nature of the biology is behind it, the animal. And so this was proven right. I mean, how many Nobel Prizes have been won through unbiased genetics? You know, you can cite the Drosophila, you can cite the cell cycle genes identified in yeast, Paul Nurse got the Nobel Prize because of that. Uh, the um, screen for genes involved in apoptosis, so cell suicide that was performed in, in the worm C. elegans that gave the Nobel Prize to Horvitz and, and colleagues and so forth. There are numerous examples. I was always, from the very earlier, earliest age, convinced that this was the best avenue forward to identify novel biology. And so that's what hooked me up, and I have never left the model since. What about epigenetics, up and down regulation, et cetera? Once you give these mutagens, what if there's epigenetic changes that mask truly what the gene is doing or make it seem non-viable when it otherwise would be viable? Like, how do you navigate that? Yeah, that's a great question. We've never, I mean, I've never looked at it very specifically, but it might be one of the reasons for which you have variability in the severity of the phenotypes you're looking at for a very similar mutation comparing two two similar mutations together. We know that the genetic background in which we do these experiments is, is critical to the severity of the phenotypes we look at. So the epigenetic impact is crucial. When we do a mutagenesis screen, we make sure we do these screens on highly inbred creatures, highly inbred fish, as to avoid, as to try to avoid the epigenetic epigenetic effects that will impact on the severity of what we're looking at, right? But it's very difficult to track, at least in the fish. When you give a mutagen, I understand it mutates a given gene, but I would think it would cause a whole cascade of epigenetic change as the fly or the zebrafish or whatever tries to adapt to the um, mutagen. It's very possible. Again, you know, repair the damage, et cetera. All that. Again, we haven't looked at that in detail, but that's something to take under consideration when these experiments. But you know, when you do a screen like this, there are many caveats, but the bottom line is all you need is a hit. You're always going to miss very important stuff, but as long as you have a hit, you have some. And if you're lucky, that hits leads you to novel biology that you didn't expect. That's how you make interesting discoveries, right? You, you find something new. You're not reinventing the wheel. Right. Well, it incorporates epigenetics. If the, I, I don't know how many genes are in a fruit, fruit fly. Uh, I, I just say 10,000. Thousands, yeah. Okay. Are you doing a systematic mapping where you say, okay, we're starting at the beginning and going to the end. And these mutagens are giving us mutations at the three to 4,000 base pair mark. But this whole area, for some reason, the mutagens aren't changing it. We still don't know what this area does. We want to get at it. You know, have you done a, a mapping? No. Just, you know, looking at genes to see what areas are not working so far and why. No, I have not. Uh, now with CRISPR screens, uh, we, we can now use CRISPR at, at a, a very large scale in the fish. We can do CRISPR screens. What we're realizing is that there are some genes that are far less amenable to CRISPR-based gen, uh, gene editing than some others. Question why, we don't know. Okay. So what genes have you mutated that you were like, wow, I didn't know that this did this. Like, what are some of the surprises you've had so far? So, Rich, uh, just one thing. So the other thing that I like about the unbiased approach is that it's the humble approach to take. The, how many times, I mean, this is well, how many 
graduate careers or postdoctoral careers were destroyed because the hypothesis was wrong. So in other words, you're a graduate student, you join a lab to do your PhD, your PI tells you you're going to knock out this gene in the mouse, and if we get a phenotype, we'll get a great paper out of it. But then three years later, there's no phenotype. How many times did that happen? It happened thousands and thousands of times. With the unbiased approach, if there's no phenotype, there's no gene because it's the phenotype that leads you to the gene. So if there's no phenotype to begin with, there's no project, right? The key will be, can you find the gene that produces that phenotype? That's the hard part. But nowadays with whole exome, exome sequencing, that's not an issue anymore. You just sequence the entire exome of the mutant compared to the wild type, and you identify the cDNA, the RNA in which the mutation is, and then you know what the mutated gene is. So that's not an issue anymore, right? Okay. So, so that's the idea. It's this humble aspect where if there's no phenotype, there's no project. You're not, you're not making a bet. You don't, you're not in a situation where you're going to tell one of your students, hey, you do this project, but I cannot guarantee that you'll get a paper out of it. I think that's also very important in scientific progress is that you train students and you don't take too, too high chances with their chance of success. If there's... That's exactly what I was going to say is, um, okay. yeah, it, it would dampen down people's willingness to risk and to research you know, novel things because right. of that. Right. And so in, in a, in a non-biased, in the unbiased approach, uh, Yanni Nusslein Bullhart, that, that Omar Price winning uh, laureate, she always used to say, in a screen, you never know what you're going to get, but you're going to get what you deserve. And by that, what she meant was, you better hope that the phenotype you're interested in is actually interesting biologically, meaning you're looking for something, say, for example, the absence of wings or whatever phenotype it is that you're interested in. You better hope that that phenotype is actually interesting biologically and will yield novel information in biology. But the bottom line is, if the trait you're looking at, no one knows how a disorder like this could happen or how a wing can form, you can be relatively certain that as long as you find the gene, you're going to find novel biology. It doesn't matter. You ask the right question. And so the key when you do the unbiased approach is to have the right phenotype, the right biological question. If you do have that, then whatever you find behind that is going to be interesting. But if you ask the wrong question, no one will care. So in a screen, you'll never know what you're going to get. That's the whole idea, but you'll get what you deserve, meaning you had to ask the right biological question to get something interesting. Okay. Well, that's really cool. So you have uh, a lot of grad students, like, you know, you, it's like every, every one that plays wins a prize. It's guaranteed. So, I mean, do you have a lot of grad students that are flocking to work with you because of this? Not necessarily. So uh, I have a policy that I only take, I only take one grad student per. So uh, I feel like when you do your PhD, you need, you need the attention of your PI. And so I only take one per cycle. I do have a lot of postdocs and technicians, though. But to answer your question, I only take one at a time. Okay. So back to my earlier question, what are some of the um, the surprises that you've seen? Like, yeah. you're like, wow, I didn't know that this would happen. Well, let's go to our most recent cover. An MD-PhD student came to my lab. And during my postdoc at Harvard, I developed a model, a zebrafish model. So, you know, in this era of targeted therapeutics, we're talking about tailoring therapy to patient, almost in a patient manner, in a single patient manner. And that's absolutely terrific. But let's not forget that not a lot of patients are going to benefit from targeted therapies, at least our generation. 
what patients still get in can, in, as a cancer therapeutic, and that's worldwide, is radiation therapy and chemotherapy. So you may like it or not, that's the reality. The latest numbers I had was radiation therapy is given to about 7 million cancer patients globally. Half of those radiation therapy is given for curative intent. So you're looking at at least 3.5 million people per year. And in the U.S., just to give you an idea, it's about half a million that get radiation therapy for curative purposes. The problem with radiation therapy, it's been around for a while. Radiation is very good at killing cancer cells. The problem is resistance. So either the, the tumor presents as resistant to radiation, it just doesn't die in response to radiation, or it acquires a mutation that makes it resistant to radiation when it comes back. And in many tumor types, such as head and neck cancer, medulloblastoma, glioblastoma, if you're resistant to radiation, that's almost like a death sentence. There's nothing much we can do with that. Now, what is the genetic basis for resistance to radiation therapy in humans? That's very controversial, but we have good evidence that mutations in the P53 tumor suppressor play a major role in at least uh, some solid tumor types. So what I did as a postdoc is I developed a zebrafish model that contains a P53 mutation, very similar to what you get in human cancers. And then I I blasted these embryos with clinically relevant doses of ionizing radiation that you could give to a patient in the clinic. And what I saw was that normal fish, so fish that didn't have that mutation, they responded to radiation as you would expect. Most of the cells were dying in these creatures. It's called radiation-induced cell death. But the P53 mutant embryos, they were completely resistant, completely resistant to radiation and cell death. So what I did as a postdoc was I said, okay, do I really have a model here on which I can screen in an unbiased fashion and look for mutations or even better in the long run drugs that would correct this lack of radiation induced cell death and make the fish, the mutant fish look like wild type again and respond to radiation again. In other words, I was looking for genetic or drug suppressors of radiation resistance in that live animal. I got a proof of concept that this was feasible during my postdoc. And then when I opened my own lab at Mount Sinai, I said, okay, I proved that this was feasible using a genetic approach. Now we're going to do the real deal. We're going to do a drug screen. And Peter, this MD, PhD student, came to my lab, joined my lab, and his dream was to do this screen. A lot of people told him, hey, this is a new guy, Sam C. Nobody knows really. But Peter stood straight and said, you know what? I want to do this project. He came to my lab, did the drug screen, identified a compound that did exactly that, that could restore radiation sensitivity in these P53 mutant fish. Oh, wow. And then after he found this drug, through collaborations with pharmacologists, computational biologists, and so forth, we could identify the target of that drug. And believe it or not, but that target was completely unexpected, completely unexpected. You would have never been able to guess that this is the gene you should target patients that resist radiation. Okay. Why is that? Because that gene, that gene is actually very well known, but it's known as a mediator of innate immunity. Until we identified it as the target of that drug, nobody had ever even linked it to the DNA damage response, or let alone to the radiation response. The fish told us that it was- Well, I like, I like your idea, you know, using phenotype to backtrack and then look for the genes that must have changed because the phenotype has changed. I think it's a really good model you have. That's exactly what you formulated the perfect way. That's exactly what we're doing. And so we find this completely unexpected role for this. It's a kinase, it's an enzyme, uh, a kinase called IRAP1. We find that IRAP1 is absolutely- 
crucial to the ability of these zebrafish to survive ionizing radiation. You inhibit it with that drug, and now p53 mutants regain the ability to respond to radiation therapy. Now, crucially, with this result in hand, we said, okay, is this also true in human cells and human cancer cells? Is it true in, in patients and so forth? And so we collaborated with a whole bunch of people, and we could confirm that this is indeed tractable, actionable target for restoring radiation therapy in human, in human patients. And actually, right now, we're in multiple collaborations to try this a new drug to this enzyme to try to um, overcome resistance to radiation therapy in very specific solid tumor types. I cannot reveal more today. It's confidential, but we're definitely taking this project further. And I like it because in a sense, it's a nice story in terms of proving that you can actually go from bench to bedside and it doesn't take, you know, 50 years to do it. If you're lucky and you ask the right question at the right time with the right assay and you're collaborating with the right people, you can go from bench to bedside, you know, within a, you know, a decade, it's not unreasonable to think that we can make progress more rapidly now in this direction. So I'm very happy about that because even though I'm a basic geneticist applying, you know, this, strategy of unbiased screening actually is now leading to real potential progress for cancer, for the treatment of cancers that would otherwise be incurable. So I'm happy about it. What about looking around in the natural environment? Like, well, it's not really natural, but it's natural. You know, Chernobyl has all kinds of animals that have been exposed to radiation, fish, catfish. You know, I'm sure there's kind of type changes there because is, you know, it's a real successful area now in terms of animals or other places around the world where you see like divergent phenotypes and then, you know, sequence them. Why not, instead of having to only do this in the lab, look out in the world too? That sounds fun. I was working a few years back uh, with, I was reviewing grants for uh, NASA and they were uh, asking a, a similar question. Could we figure out, can, can we identify genes that would protect astronauts from uh, cosmic radiation, space, space radiation? And I can't, can't go too much into the details, but there's research in that area for sure. Okay. Some species evolve to be extremely resistant to environmental radiation. And so they must what, have what, genes that protect themselves. Do you, do you have the gravitas yet to, um, you know, to speak about this and to encourage other labs and other scientists to take a more, um, you know, I don't even know what you call the approach, but I guess this the know, just different thinking approach. The unbiased approach, right? The, the unbiased approach is actually not specific to me. Many people in the zebrafish field apply this approach. The idea is, in a sense, you want to find your own niche and then exploit it to the max. So I'm not the only person doing unbiased drug screens in the fish. I'm not the only person at all doing unbiased genetic screens in the fish. That's our asset. That's what we can do that mouse people cannot do, what human geneticists cannot do, obviously. And so this approach that I'm taking is quite common in the zebrafish field. Where I'm a little bit unusual is I try, I've applied this approach to, tar to target discovery and cancer. So, I gotcha. So most of the time, people will use this approach to identify genes involved in development involved in cardiac function or cardiac regeneration or stem cell function or stem cell replenishment, hematological phenotypes, you name them, behavioral phenotypes. At Harvard, what we did is we, we, we wanted to start to apply 
this strategy to target discovery in cancer. And the key was using the fish, not only because you can do it in the fish, but the fish is also a whole animal. And so when you screen in the fish, you overcome one major obstacle in cancer and uh, drug discovery in cancer. You know, Richard, you know this, the problem, the, the obstacles in cancer drug discovery and cancer therapeutics is not an inability to kill cancers. We can destroy tumors, no problem. You know, I give you rat poison, I'm going to kill your tumor. The problem is I'm also going to kill you at the same time. The issue has always been selectivity, right? You only wanted to, to kill the tumor cells or at least preferentially kill the tumor cell. So doing a screen for drugs that restore sensitivity to radiation in cancer cells grown in a Petri dish, yeah, that will give, that will identify drugs that are effective. So it's called an efficacy screen, but it leaves out the most important information, which is, is this drug going to be toxic? And in the fish, when we do our screen in the fish, we're not only looking for efficacy of the drugs, we're also looking for drugs that will not be toxic to the animal, right? That's the key. And so in the screen that we did that led to the identification of this target, we were only interested in drugs that would restore sensitivity, sensitivity to radiation, but otherwise, crucially, not harm fish that, would, that were not irradiated, studied in parallel, right? So we were looking for targets, for we were looking for efficacy, but crucially, we were also looking for lack of toxicity at the same time. And this is what I figured we brought to the table as zebrafish biologists. We could do these screens, not only looking for efficacy, but looking for toxicity at the same time. And so we threw away a lot of compounds that were very good at restoring sensitivity to radiation. The problem is that they also affected normal zebrafish development or physiology. We could throw all of these away and just focus on these rare hits that would only sensitize the fish to radiation, but otherwise not harm them in the absence of radiation. Okay. I mean, now that I'm thinking about natural variations of phenotype, you know, I know people, I guess this wouldn't work for cancer because you need it to be heritable. I thought about a concept today that it's, it's obvious, but I don't know why I didn't think of it before. You know, there's heredity, you know, through the germline, but I didn't, I didn't think about the progeny of just cell division. Could you use, you know, the evolution of different phenotype just from, you know, somatic cell divisions, that flavor of heredity and that for, you know, that type of phenotypic change or drift or expression to, to, to find gene targets somehow? Could you adapt your model that way? We, there is new technology that would, yes, there is new technology that allows us to screen in somatic, uh, entirely somatically. Yes. So the idea is you take an adult fish, immunocompromised, and you graft cancer cells. And then you screen for drugs or mutations in your fish, so in the microenvironment of the tumor, that will suppress metastasis, for example. That's possible too. Now, you can also mutagenize the tumor itself before transplanting it and looking for suppressors that way. That's a good question, and there's new technology to do it. I think it's still a little bit unrealistic to do that at a large scale, but in the future, why not? Okay. Well, very interesting. Sam, uh, I mean, this is great. This is like a whole new area, really, of exploration that you've kind of uh, uncovered. What, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work in your lab? And if they want to have a conversation with you on how they can apply your methods to what they're doing, no matter how disparate, you know, again, where can people go? Oh, I mean, you can just Google my name and you'll have lots of very relevant information 
that pops up. There's my lab website that I can give you. You know, there's a, a very nice uh, YouTube video uh, that was done when I received an award recently through the Pershing Square Foundation, uh, Bill Ack- Ackman's foundation that funded, uh, that actually funded this project. So it's, it's cool in this way. And so I explained, I tried to explain this project and the, what we're trying to do with the fish that we can do with other model systems that, that you can easily find on Google if you type my name, uh, on YouTube if you type my name. And then you can go to my lab website again, or just read our papers in the literature. Again, Google my name and all these things will come up. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Sam, thanks for coming on the podcast. And uh, yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.